All this magic, what has it accomplished? Tell me, how are your studies going? Fine. They're going well. You still wish to be a sorcerer? Oh, yes, more than anything. Well, then, Adaptus Mino, get yourself a handful of that sulfurous ash over there. Star Wars has a lot to answer for. As much as I love it, I do think it did kind of ruin cinema to a small degree. And why is that? Because I shudder to think how many studios in the immediate aftermath of the success of Star Wars greenlit utter garbage in a vague attempt to replicate its success. And yes, I love Space Hunter Adventure in the Forbidden Zone, when I was seven, I also quite enjoyed Battlestar Galactica in its original incarnation, and yes, it's terrible now. And the 80s is full of these types of films. Kroll, God Awful, Star Crash, Battle Beyond the Stars, Masters of the Universe. The fact of the matter is that the world went fantasy mad, or science fiction fantasy mad, whatever you want to call it, and don't even try and tell me any of these crap rip-offs are actually good. They're all rubbish, and you know it. Hidden amongst the slew of crap, however, of course there's Disney's The Black Hole, which a film I one day will do a full review on, because by God is that film weird. There's Disney's Tron, another film that I absolutely love. And the one I'm going to be talking about today, which is Disney's Dragon Slayer. Now, I've never heard of this film before I decided to include it on this year's festival, and I have to confess I went into it fearing the worst. Now, Dragon Slayer was a Disney Paramount co-production, and Disney got the international distribution and Paramount got North America. It was the, the first of two collaborations between the studios, the other one being Robert Altman's Popeye. And with that in mind, I think both of these films seem to be a quite deliberate attempt by Disney from moving away from the Disney brand because Dragon Slayer is far from what we would commonly associate with Disney. Director Matthew Robbins and writer Hal Barwood were inspired by the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence in Disney's Fantasia. Studios did not flock to this project, however, until Disney and Paramount decided to take a gamble on it. With a budget of $18 million, Dragon Slayers was put into production. The story borrows from a wealth of text. In the land of Erland, a kind of pre-Christianity England, a huge dragon terrifies the land. The local king placates the dragon, borrowing up a virgin maiden once a year from a lottery out of his kingdom. A wizard called Auric, played by Ralph Richardson, is to dispatched to help rid the kingdom of the hideous beast, only for himself to be killed very early on in proceeding with his apprentice Galen, but paid by Peter McNichol, to take on the task of killing the dragon. Along the way, he meets Valerian, played by Caitlin Clark, who has to disguise herself as a boy to avoid the lottery. Her father, a forger, might just have the weapon he made years ago that can slay the beast, and with the spiritual guidance of Ulrich, Galen sets off on his quest to rid the dragon once and for all, and hopefully get the girl. Make no mistake, Dragon Slayer borrows heavily from a range of text. Ralph Richardson as Ulrich is Gandalf, and what a Gandalf he would have made. Of course, guiding beyond the Graveslan owes a good deal to Star Wars, and there's some old-fashioned British mythology stone in there for good measure. 
Dragonslayer and Dragonslayer drops into a kind of between state. It might just have been a mythical story from somewhere that you would recognise, but it said it's an original story that one rather specs wants you to believe it is based on a fantastical tale that was etched on the wall in the 6th century. Now I'd simply never heard of this film before researching it. I didn't see it on the rental shelves when I was perusing the VHSs in the good old days, and I never recall seeing or hearing anything about it on television or from friends. And more's a shame because Dragon Slayer is actually pretty damned good. The film is dark, not just in tone, but in look. This is Dark Ages after all, and Dragon Slayer excused the sometimes filmic convention that anything set in this period has a kind of faux niceness to it. John Borman's Excalibur, a film I love, is always to me possibly a bit too clean, too sanitised. And not so much here because this film looks rough and lived in, and it's hard to imagine the Dark Ages weren't anything but a particularly terrifying age to live, with murder, plague and some superstition thrown in for good measure to remind you death was lurking everywhere and anywhere. Anyone could invent something quite horrible. Unclean beast, get thee down! Be thou consumed by the fires that make The film therefore has a suitably scuzzy dirty look, but also at times it is quite beautiful too. Diffused light through the forest of rivers, soft focus and the like, and director of photographer Derek Van Litt, who also shot Alien, brings the sensibility of that film to Dragon Slayer. And it's a very visually dark film, and often like the characters, you can't quite see what's around the corner. It creates a real genuine sense of suspense at times. And the thing about Dragon Slayer is you know exactly where the film's going. There is a familiarity to it, but I think it keeps you entertained throughout. And it also has the budget. It never looks cheap. And even though a th almost a third of that budget went on creating the actual dragon, the use of locations, of castles and mountains and forests means that you're always, I think, believing in the film despite its fantastical elements. You don't need the matte shots, the miniatures. It's all there on screen for you to see. And that dragon is quite the creation. This is one of most ILM's most impressive creatures using a form of old stop motion puppetry. I was reminded of films that I loved like Jason and the Argonauts and he's a uniquely filmic creation I think, harking back to a physical age of filmmaking, King Kong and the like, that has effectively been replaced by CGA, which is not to I think diminish, dismiss the work of CGI artists, however because Dragon Slayer is not about bombarding with your tops with effects from the very beginning and actually builds some tension in revealing you, revealing him to you. It's an incredibly impressive singular creation, but I think that does come at a cost because I said before, almost a third of the film's budget went on creating the dragon. And it does mean that I think there is a lack of star power in this film. Of course, Ralph Richardson is the biggest A name in it and he is excellent. And despite finding a great deal of fame in this series, Alan McBill, Peter McNittles, Kaylin Clark and co, so you don't have the gravitas and star power to really carry the film. Of course, they are more than adequate, and make no mistake, Star Wars, other than Alec Guinness, had relative newcomers in the likes of Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and Harrison Ford, but they were just a lot better characters and better acted and better written than they are here. 
stars don't necessarily make a film, but of Dragon Slayer, you rather get the impression having one on board might have helped a little bit with its prestige. But all being said, Dragon Slayer is more than an entertaining slice of fantasy fun. The dragon is pretty damn great. And every time Ralph Richardson is on screen, I did tend to enjoy it a lot more. I really admired the film's visuals. Think Game of Thrones with some Lord of the Rings and you pretty much have, you pretty much get an idea of what I'm talking about. Yet Dragon Slayer does lack a certain something. It lies somewhere in a no man's land. It's an adult Disney film, which kind of renders it a bit of an oddity. After all, don't we want Disney to be Disney? It's hugely enjoyable and it has a kind of downer ending that I was slightly surprised with. Lead to say it did not spawn a franchise and barely recouped its budget. It has not found its way onto Disney Plus or Blu-ray and I rather feel that has been put out to Parsha. Shame because it's a film made on real locations with great effects and I believe a long overdue rediscovery of it would more than warrant a nice Blu-ray release from a boutique label. Now 70mm notes this film was blown up from the 35mm negative and given a six track surround sound with split rear channels and a dedicated baby boom or subwoofer track too. As far as I can tell 70mm engagement of the film were limited to the United States and I can't see any reference to the film being shown on 70mm in Europe. On this format it seems to have had no screenings in the recent history on 70mm and I would wager that perhaps those prints don't exist. But that was Dragon Slayer. Um, you can buy it, uh, I think you can buy it or rent it on Amazon. So if you are interested, you will find it there. The plane, Firefox, the most devastating killing machine ever built. The weapon system is one of the most advanced ever conceived with a thought-guided, thought-controlled arsenal on board the plane. If the Soviets can mass-produce it, it will change the structure of our world. The man, Mitchell Gant, the most daring U.S. fighter pilot ever to fly a plane. It's not a one of you who think I have a chance in the world of pulling this off, is it? Anything. Just fly the damn plane. I'm a dagger. Ah! Mitchell gun. The mission steel firefox. Gant, can you fly that plane? Yeah, I can fly it. I'm the best there is. Great mother of God, he's up! <laughs> I'm speaking to the individual who has stolen the property of the USSR. We're getting the royal treatment. You will not, of course, make it to wherever you are going. Let's see what this baby can do. Captain, he's coming straight in. I don't know what it is, but I'm a sitting duck. It, we have brought down the American. Well, that's it. We might as well all go home. We don't know. The hell we don't know. They got him, Aubrey. I don't know. That could mean they didn't get him. That could mean they didn't get him. That could mean they didn't get him. Clint Eastwood in one of the most incredible undercover operations in history, Firefox. 
When I was about 13 or 14, I had one obsession, fighter planes. I was a veritable encyclopedia of knowledge on the subject, which meant any film that had fighter planes would be an instant hit for me. And I also had a rather keen interest in the Cold War, and despite the fact that it had ended, I do recall watching things like the Berlin Wall come down and various other incidents through the 80s, and I was too young to really understand it all, and I think as I got a little bit older, the subject really came to amaze me. The sheer cost of it, the science behind it, the idea that the world could have been so massively divided in such a way. And although I was incredibly young, the idea of communism really fascinated me. My parents, to their credit, regularly bought me books on the subject that I would devour, a book called Wings that was written by none other than Chuck Yeager himself and had some rather tantalising pictures of various American jets flying over locations all over the world and despite all this love of aeroplanes I did always think the film Top Gun was utterly awful and this was due largely in part because as far as I was concerned there was only one film with a jet plane in it and not only did this film have cool dogfights it also had some pretty decent dollop of Cold War spy film chucked in for good measure and the film of course I'm talking about is Clint Eastwood's Firefox. It's a techno thriller and also its core deals with the trauma of the Vietnam conflict. Eastwood plays Mitchell Gant, a Vietnam veteran who is recruited for the rather daring mission of infiltrating Russia and stealing their latest technologically advanced fighter jet, the MiG-31 Firefox. Gant has been chosen for the mission because in order to fly the Firefox, one has to think like a Russian because its weapon systems are thought controlled and Gant's mother was Russian, ergo this somehow makes him eligible for the mission. It's never really entirely explained and to be brutally honest with you, I never really cared and I still don't to this day. But when I thought about the film a little bit more, Firefox is actually quite an interesting film because I think it's part of a series of films in the 1980s reasserting the more righteousness of American foreign policy. Now America thought it could win the Vietnam War by technological superiority alone it dropped a staggering amount of weapons and employed its latest military hardware but could not defeat an enemy with such a strong ideological fortitude and strategic ingenuity that was simply too much for the Americans and its proxy army, the Arvin, to defeat. So what lesson did it glean from this experience? Well, America was, in its view, ideologically on the right side of history in the Vietnam War. Communism was and is evil and democracy is freedom. Yet the Vietnam War scarred American psyche and films have often tried to reconcile this notion that despite losing, America was still in the right. Now the Firefox is a technological marvel that has been designed in part by Jewish scientists who Russians are using as forced labor. Therefore, the Firefox is not technically even a Russian creation, ergo it's not indicative of communist superiority, and most importantly, its use is not correct, as the Russians will abuse its power. It's therefore up to the US to steal the plane in order to ensure its correct military implementation. Now this film, this theme, sorry, is also reflected in films like The Hunt for Red October. The Russians are simply not allowed to have this type of technology, because they are the ones who are ideologically the bad guys. And despite the awful use of military technology in the Vietnam War, America, according to this film, should be the ones who get to decide how this type of technology is employed. 
Now, despite being in Russia and paid for by the Russians, given the fact it's being made in slave labor, the Russians shouldn't in no way, shape or form be allowed to own this piece of technology. And as some very long scenes of exposition show, delivered with great gusto by the brilliant actor Freddie Jones, should the Russians be able to mass produce this jet, it might turn the course of the Cold War. The very world, therefore, is dependent on this jet being stolen and brought back to America. This was taken on Friday last. It is the secret complex at Bilyarsk. If you look at the top right-hand corner, you will make out the main hangar. Uh, could we... Uh... Ah, this is the detail of that section. Take a good look, gentlemen, because we have every reason to believe that you're looking at the Firefox. When the first rumors began to filter out of the Soviet Union some three years ago, our theoretical weapon strategist stood before NATO command to explain with much confidence that it would take the Soviets a minimum of ten years to develop a Mach. Five aircraft with thought-controlled weapon systems. I stand before you today to explain, with much regret, that they were wrong. At 0400 hours on uh, Thursday, we were stunned by the encoded transmission that now sits in front of you, General Rogers. All with our satellite surveillance, planes were flown up Saturday over the Turkey-Soviet border, roughly here, and the Finnish-Soviet border, here, using the information of Dr. Baranovich about the time and flight path of the Firefox, we were able to monitor the arena formed by these coordinates here with our most sophisticated radar devices. Except for a flight of cranes headed south, nothing entered that airspace all day. We checked immediately with our source in Bilyarsk. The Firefox flew and flew at the exact time and within the specified coordinates given to us by Dr. Baranovich, we're left with only one possible explanation, gentlemen. It is quite inescapable. The Soviets have developed some sort of anti-radar capability for the aircraft. The Firefox is, to all intents and purposes, invisible. Now, I love the film's setup. It's not PC to say this, but there's not a woman in sight in Firefox. This is an intensely masculine affair. The aforementioned Freddie Jones briefs the various military men and intelligence experts, and the scene cuts back and forth between Eastwood being groomed for the mission. It's classic Eastwood, the perpetual outsider away from the establishment. Now, there's not a chance he's not going to agree to go on the mission because there truly is no one quite like him. He lives out there in the wilderness, the outlaw, yet the one person the higher-ups can turn to to get the job done. And because he is Clint Eastwood, he can. And in fairness, he has little to do in Firefox. He just has to look and act like Clint Eastwood, which he does, of course, because he is Clint Eastwood. The plot is, of course, utterly ridiculous. Gant will infiltrate Russia posing as a drug dealer, the actual one being bumped off, where he will meet the underground, who apparently acts like the French resistance headed by Pavel, played by a really rather good Warren Clark, where he will infiltrate the base with the help of the scientists working at the Firefox and steal it. Now, Jean Leclerc it might not be, but Firefox, when it's in its espionage phase, in at Russia is actually pretty good, and by the way, Vienna doubled for Russia. And with the use of match shots, you actually get a pretty good decent recreation of the time and he rather embraces the whole kind of spy vibe with the film 
He aims for a kind of realism. There's lots of the mechanics of espionage, cars following cars, phone calls to HQ, suspicious checks of IDs and glances from KGB agents. And of course, the accents are all over the place. Sometimes I think people try to be German. Sometimes I think they're just being English with rather silly accent, accents on. And it's all rather hammy, but nevertheless, incredibly good fun. Yes, uh, Mr. Sprague. Yes. What is the nature of your visit to Moscow? Business. Yes, what business? Specifically. Carburetors, bearings, it's all right in there. Do you mind telling me what you're looking for? You have been to the Soviet Union several times in the past few months. Is that correct, Mr. Sprague? I've been here six times in the past few months. Nothing like this has ever happened. What's going on here? We apologize for the delay, Mr. Sprague. But as you must be aware, every international airport has its own set of unique problems. Been in every international airport in the world. Never been insulted like this. I'm a businessman. I do a lot of business with your superiors. And it's also incredibly violent. The under the drug dealer being bludgeoned to death, Eastwood kicking a KGB agent's face in the toilet, and the KGB beating a suspect to death. It really captures the prevailing mood of the time as well, and that's a Western view of the Soviet Union. It's a dark, miserable place, the people repressed. I can't imagine anyone living in this time actually enjoyed being in Russia. It just seems all above a notch above Orwell's 1984. Now, Eastwood regular director of photography Booth Surti goes for a claustrophobic feel to the film. There's lots of close-ups, darkly lit scenes with characters coming in and out of the shadows with only the ambient light of a scene being used. And it also feels huge at times. The compositions are for the wide screen framed, often filled with the aforementioned darkness. It's a grimy dark film that adds a kind of gritty, very stylized reality. And because it's not actually filmed on location, we don't get a bevy of establishing city shots. Moreover, feel you are low down in the heart of the action with the protagonists. And also, I think, in Firefox, there's a real kind of healthy dose of the fear of war. Gantz suffers from terrible flashbacks from his time in Vietnam. And he has seen what war can do to people. And throughout the film, the Firefox is built up as a kind of mythical creation. So when it does eventually appear in the hangar, it has a real sense of gravitas about it. Firstly, it's real. This was a prop that was actually built and it legit looks incredibly scary, frightening machine. You understand its purpose and its significance. And you can see in Eastwood's performance that he knows the Firefox means business. There's a palpable sense that all the mission suddenly makes sense when he gets to actually start flying the thing. Now, one of the reasons he's been chosen is because obviously his mother was Russian or something. And in order for the Firefox to work, Firefox to work correctly, he has to think like a Russian, he's repeatedly told. And I'm not entirely sure how all this is supposed to come together, but... As I said before, I don't really care. But once we're up in the air, and because of this type of plot element, Firefox effectively becomes science fiction. And now, whilst the effects perhaps haven't held up entirely, I don't think you're ever taken out of the film when it invariably has to get 
up in the air and flying around. And when Gant decides to test out the Firefox at low level, you get some rather wonderful shots of him flying through valleys and snow being fired up into the air in the wake of the jet engines. He takes out some Russian helicopters. And of course, there's a rather dramatic touch of having to land on ice to refuel via an American submarine. It also has one of the film's great exchanges where a Russian first secretary tries to convince him to return the Firefox to its rightful owners. And you get one of those great Eastwood throwaway lines. I couldn't ascertain the extent of the damage to prototype two. Uh, that'll be Bilyarsk, possibly Air Marshal Kutuzov. This is the first secretary. I'm speaking to the individual who has stolen the property of the USSR. Can you hear me, Mr. Gant? Oh, we're getting the royal treatment. Yeah, go ahead, I'm listening. Are you enjoying your ride, Mr. Gant? You like our new toy? Could be improved. <laughs> your uh, expert opinion, Mr. Gant? You could say that. Aren't you going to threaten me or something? I will do so if that is what you wish. But first, I will merely ask you to return what does not belong to you. And then you'll forget the whole thing, right? <laughs> I do not think that you would believe that, Mr. Gant. Would you? No, of course not. All I will say is that you will live if you return immediately. It is calculated that no more than four minutes flying time would be required before we could sight you back over Bilyarsk. And the alternative? You will not be allowed to hand over the MiG-31 to the security services of your country. Will not allow that to happen. I understand. I'm sorry, sir, but I can't do that. I see. You will not, of course, make it to wherever you are going. Goodbye, Mr. Gant. But I do have one issue with Firefox. And yes, we get the dogfight because of course there's another Firefox prototype that's been made and the Russians get it up there to try and bring him down. But it's when the film ends and it suddenly feels all rather abrupt. Like somehow its build-up has not been adequately paid off. And beside one of the characters I like most, the Freddie Jones one, is rather left wanting by the screenplay. Quite frankly, I wanted to see a scene in which the Firefox lands and Jones gets to have a look at it parked up and in safe hands. And instead it just sort of ends and we're done. And perhaps the film just had nothing more to say. Clint had had his jewel in the sky and I guess he just want, perhaps he just wanted to kind of steal some of the limelight for himself. Who really knows? And I guess it was kind of hitting the two hour territory so it might have been deemed slightly unnecessary to have the scene of the, of the Firefox arriving in the West. Overall though, I've always found this to be a tremendously enjoyable film. It's a Clint Eastwood film and anyone who likes Clint Eastwood, it's just Clint doing what he does best with a kind of sci-fi trappings. And of course it is slightly ridiculous that someone would be selected for a mission who's suffering so badly from flashbacks that at the start of the film they're found clutching a shotgun, having a mental breakdown. I'm not really sure that this would be the best person to pack off to Russia, but who cares? When a film is this much fun, I do have another slight bugbear as well, which is Marishar's score. I just don't like his work, and I don't know enough about music to know if his compositions are technically good or not. What I do know, however, is that I've never really heard one 
that's particularly stirred me or made me feel any kind of emotion whatsoever. Now Firefox was a box office hit and in 70mm notes, five prints were struck for North America with engagements in New York, Los Angeles and San Jose, followed by further engagements in Lakewood, California, where it was double billed with Rocky III and in Seattle and Linwood, in Seattle and Linwood where it was double billed with Superman II. I have no information regarding a European 70mm release and I cannot see any recent showings of the film in 70mm leading me to believe that there might not be any prints of it available. Now I did own the, v the DVD of the film which looked fairly poor but I'm glad to report the Blu-ray does look and sound pretty damn decent. Um, the only thing is it's quite hard to pick up, it's never really had a release in Britain and I think it was double billed with uh, Heartbreak Ridge in some territories but um, I, I, I would like to see perhaps say uh, a re-release of this film. I know it's a Warner Brothers film, so perhaps it might come out on the premium collection and you know, that's released through HMV. But other than that, that was Firefox. How do you follow up one of the greatest Hollywood films of all time? Well, perhaps logic would dictate that you wouldn't bother, you would just let the original film be what it is and cement it place in film lore as a one-off special lightning in a bottle moment. However, that isn't obviously how Hollywood work. And that's not to say that I don't like sequels. I really do actually. Some of my favorite films are sequels. I think they're if, I'm, if I like characters and I like the world the film's taking place in, I'm always quite happy if someone can present a sequel that offers something new on the original. It's the same way I feel about remakes. I don't, I don't tend to have the, um, the rather negative attitude that a lot of people do to remakes. Sorcerer is a remake of The Wages of Fear, don't forget, and sometimes uh, remakes can really bring something quite new and interesting to the table. And if they don't, I don't bother watching them the same way I feel about sequels. I'm quite happy. Um, to leave the Matrix with the first film and walk away. I don't need any of the of, of what comes afterwards. But trying to follow up a film like Chinatown seems an almost impossible task for me. However, a sequel was made and it came out in 1990 and it was written and it was directed by Jack Nicholson. And although I'd heard of the two Jakes, I had never watched it, so when I was going through the list of 70mm blow-ups for this episode, trying to get some ideas, I thought, well, why not? I will give it a go. Now, before I get to how I feel about the film, I think it's important to go back and talk about the history of the production of The Two Jakes, because I think it does actually, I think it plays a huge part in what The Two Jakes actually ended up being. Now, despite its one of brilliance, Chinatown writer Robert Town always conceived it to be a trilogy. Chinatown, The Two Jakes, and a third film dealing with Jackie's getting a divorce. The through line would be Tales of the Elements. Chinatown is a film about water, The Two Jakes about fire and energy, and the third would be about air. Now, Jack Nicholson and producer Bob Evans had an idea. They would ask Town to direct The Two Jakes, taking a small pay cut, but a large cut of the film's imagined profits. The Two Jakes would see in Gitty's return, this time facing off against developer Julius Jake Berman, Catherine Mulway, daughter of and sister of Evelyn, would also return. 
Presumably under the influence of narcotics, Nicholson and Town hit upon another idea. Bob Evans would play the second Jake. Town was convinced utterly that Evans would win an Oscar. It was clearly a genius idea, they thought. Kelly McGuinness, Kathy Moriarty, Dennis Hopper, Joe Pesci and Harvey Cartel were all cast and rehearsals began with a view for an April 1985 shoot. However, there was one problem. Town realised very early on that Evans was terrible. And deep down, Evans knew it too. He was simply too nervous to play the character. And there was also another spanner in the works. Evans had undergone plastic surgery and didn't want a period haircut because his scars would be visible. McGuinness was unable not to laugh at him when they were doing rehearsals. And the film was about to begin production with the crew in place when Town pulled the plug on the furious Evans, who in later life even admitted he should have walked long ago. Lawsuits followed and Nicholson attempted to buy the screenplay from Town with his own money for $2 million, only Town refused. Town then had another idea. He would make the film without the involvement of Paramount. Dino De Laurentiis was approached as producer with Harrison Ford playing Jake Gittis and Kelly McGuinness remained in place and Rai Schneider would play the other Jake. The film would go into production in 1986. Then the trouble began. Paramount wanted too much for the rights and legal wranglings meant that the two Jakes would again be shelved. Nicholson, however, was still keen on the project and in the intervening years, and with all the participants having gotten over their previous issues, the two Jakes would again begin production. Now Nicholson, who had directed Drive, he said, and Going South, was now going to helm the two Jakes. It seems Paramount wanted Nicholson, he was a more natural choice, and just perhaps his name on the directing credit would bring more box office in for the film. Harvey Keitel returned to the project along with Madeleine Stowe and Meg Tilly as Catherine Mulray. Nicholson was by all accounts massively enthusiastic about the project. He excitedly drove around Hollywood with director of photography Vilmos Zimsgrad and the crew began looking at potential locations for the film, eager to tell everyone that he was going to bring the past back to life. I wonder if the project had reminded him how far Hollywood had fallen since the making of Chinatown. The 80s, with some obvious exceptions, was not a great decade for movies. The era of high-concept cinema with its glossy, shallow aesthetic hasn't aged well to me. Maybe, just maybe, Nicholson was hoping he could kickstart a new golden era of Hollywood with one of the sequels to one of its greatest works. There was another problem, however. The script was only 80% complete. Now, Robert Town promised he would finish it and had decamped to Bora Bora, where Bob Evans would leave messages with various people because Town was staying in a hut with no lines of communication. At times, pages of the script would arrive by fax. The actors would read their lines and then try and shoot the scene. Nicholson felt terribly let down by town because of this. Nicholson would sometimes go home and then rewrite the pages, often staying late at night to do so. Nicholson also had to rely heavily on Vilmos Zimsgrad to help shoot most of the film, and by all accounts, the filming of the two Jakes was a great place to, to work, with milkshakes in Jack's trailer, trips to basketball matches, and actress Meg Tilly in particular was in glowing praise of him during the making of the film. What wasn't glowing, though, was the film's box office. The two Jakes came and went, critical reception was mixed, and audience was largely ambivalent. Nicholson would 
never direct again. And Robert Town admitted later that the experience had soured his relationship with his best friends, Nichols and Evans, to the point where the ne he had never spoke to them again. There was talk of Town working on another Chinatown project for Netflix. However, this is yet to come in fruition. And in truth, I really can't see it happening at all. So with that all being said, is the two Jakes actually any good? Well, yeah. Kind of, and I think what saves the two Jakes it is steeped in cinematic lore that you cannot help to be charmed by, even if I think the story is way too convoluted to really ever find completely engaging. And I sincerely believe that without Vilmos Zimsgrad, the two Jakes may well have really been quite a dud. Nicholson, however, is indicative, I think, of the film's production hell because, quite simply, he looks too old to be playing Jack Gitties. When the film, had the film been made when it was supposed to, then perhaps I think it may have worked better. But Nicholson looks too, like he's carrying too much white weight and there's a slapsticky type vibe that's going on. This is the mad Jack, the caricature Jack Nicholson we would get in the later years. And too often Nicholson injects a kind of physical comedy into the film that borders on the silly. There's a terrible scene where Nicholson knocks the Madeleine Stowe character unconscious with his elbow, who is kind of carried off unconscious as she would be in a kind of god-awful Adam Sandler film or something like that. And just as your eyes are beginning to roll, suddenly the film will drag you back into its cinematic, gorgeous world. There's beautiful shots of LA at sundown, sumptuous set designs and the two jakes sometimes makes you feel you have drifted into some kind of gorgeous cinematic dream and god knows sometimes i crave that the city's different at night the air smells better it's harder to see that the oil rigs outnumber the palm trees and it's almost like the good old days at least the way i'd like to remember them stay in this business long enough and every street leads to a place you'd like to forget. Every case brings back memories of what you should have done and what might have been and every skirt reminds you of another woman. Or, if you've got it bad enough, the same woman. And although, given its storyline, it's how I've always felt about Chinatown. It's that score by Jerry Goldsmith. It has a sensuality to me, a romance. And the film's incredible presentation of 30s LA is intoxicating. And every time I watch Chinatown, I, I feel like I'm in a movie movie, in a movie world. The two Jakes goes there at time. Jake driving through LA, the period details, the cars, the awnings outside buildings, as far as the eye can see, the oil pumps, the gorgeous golden hue of it all. And really, this is I think this is probably one of the most beautiful of all the films that Vilmo Stinsgaard ever shot. But The Two Jakes suffers from town screenplay at times. As I said, it's far too convoluted and lacks, in my mind, enough intrigue to keep you truly gripped. It's a film that is really about the past, how it affects us, how it shapes us. But just over two hours, you do rather feel that town could have been a tad more nuanced with the story he was telling. Yet The Two Jakes never collapses entirely. There is always just enough there, scene by scene, to keep you invested. It reminded me in part of The Big Sleep. It's not a film I love by any stretch of the imagination, but crucially I feel that I'm in a film world with Hollywood stars, Los Angeles, noir, femme fatales, the dialogue which can only exist in classic American cinema. 
of the two and when we see the paramount logo at the start of the two jakes i'm in you've completely got me hook line and sinker yet come the end there's just a sense that the two jakes is a slightly underwhelming experience it doesn't have the punch and i suppose how could it of the original chinatown i don't think had, had the screenplay been worked on the minute chinatown had finished i think it could have been something altogether far more satisfying yeah, the two jakes is definitely not terrible there's so much to in there is a lot to enjoy even if it comes simple pleasure of looking at the screen and basking in reverence for the lost art of cinema and hollywood that aesthetically seems to me ever more distanced from those halcyon days of chinatown and on a budget of 25 million dollars the two jakes would only claw back 10 million worldwide making it quite a substantial loss now on 70 millimeter notes it seems that the two jakes did did play quite a lot in LA. I can't find any mention of a European release in 70mm and it doesn't appear to crop up at any 70mm screenings or festivals any time recently. What I can confirm though is that the Blu-ray is a thing of utter beauty. Projected up in the film room it looked and sounded perfect, amazing and is available on the HMV Premiere Collection in the UK along with some poster and some art cards so do enjoy. So I was keen to get a biopic into this year's festival and there are many to choose from, especially from the 70mm blow-up list. But I came across one which was a film I haven't seen for a number of years. I think I remember watching it uh, when I was a teenager. I definitely remember scenes from the film. And I decided to go back to Spike Lee's 1992 film Malcolm X. I had it in my head that the film was kind of considered to be a masterpiece by a great deal many critics but when I began to look into the responses to Malcolm X it did seem to range from kind of absolute adulation to a slightly more measured response to the film's legacy and by my admission I'm not not a fan of Spike Lee films. I've not just, I've, it's really more of a simple fact, it's I've not really seen a great deal many of his works. Uh, his behaviour at the Oscars uh, a few years ago, I think, annoyed me a little bit when he kind of stormed off when he felt he should have been awarded something or some other. And to be brutally honest with you, I, I've just kind of not really made much of a concerted effort to go through and, and, and work my way through his filmography. I really did not like uh, The Five Bloods, um, I didn't like Black Klansman recently, I've, um, his old boy remake I thought was absolutely terrible, um, I've seen Miracle at St Anna which again didn't do a whole heap for me, Inside Man I kind of quite enjoyed but I, I've not really seen kind of the middle phase like the clockers get on the bus, he got games, some of Sam and all that and I will I think after having watched Malcolm X um, get down and, 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 and see more of his films but Malcolm X was the film I decided to pick for the 70mm festival and I'm going to go into the opening of Spike Lee's Malcolm X in more detail in the next few minutes. Asalaamu Alaikum. How do you feel? Who do we want to hear? Are we going to bring him on? Yes we're going to bring him on. Well let us hear from our minister. 
Minister Malcolm X. Let us bring him on with a round of applause. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that I charge the white man. I charge the white man with being the greatest murderer on earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest kidnapper on earth. There is no place in this world that that man can go and say he created peace and harmony. Everywhere he's gone, he's created havoc. Everywhere he's gone, he's created destruction. So I charge him. I charge him with being the greatest kidnapper on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest murderer on this earth. I charge him with being the greatest robber and enslaver on this earth. I charge the white man with being the greatest swine eater on this earth, the greatest drunkard on this earth. He can't deny the charges. You can't deny the charges. We're the living proof of those charges. You and I are the proof. You're not an American. You are the victim of America. You didn't have a choice coming over here. He didn't say, black man, black woman, come on over and help me build America. He said, nigga, get down in the bottom of that boat, and I'm taking you over there to help me build America. Being born here does not make you an American. I'm not an American. You're not an American. You're one of the 22 million black people who are the victims of America. You and I, we've never seen any democracy. We ain't seen no democracy in the, the cotton fields of Georgia. Wasn't no democracy down there. We didn't see any democracy on the streets of Harlem, in the streets of Brooklyn, in the streets of Detroit, in Chicago. Ain't no democracy down there. No, we've never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. Having not watched a film in years, I was admittedly taken aback by the opening verbal assault by the excellent Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X. Something in me bristled, I thought, as I watched the scene. Are all white people guilty? How am I, as a white person, responsible for the sins white people have committed centuries ago? Fuck you, I thought, to a degree, and I'm not a racist, so stop assuming that I am. And in this scene, Malcolm X is a man bristling with anger. The injustice his fellow black citizens are subjected to, the police violence they have to endure, and the society that calls them Americans but very much doesn't treat them as Americans. They are simply a second-class entity within the country. And Malcolm X is a film that lets you step into the shoes of another man to experience and understand a life far removed from your own that incorporates a quite incredible transformation from hustler to prisoner to preacher to icon and ultimately immortality. Malcolm X's life is truly extraordinary yet as a film Malcolm X is a frustrating experience when it works it is pure cinematic joy surreal at times even it even has a dance scene and this is a straight up dance sequence out of something of a Busby Berkeley musical, yet soon becomes a rather standard, almost cliched biopic that will never, never really collapses in on itself, is propelled forward by the brilliance of Denzel Washington, who managed to make the film at very very least constantly entertaining. Before we go anywhere though, I do have to talk about 
Malcolm X's opening. Now, Patton is one of my favourite films of all times. That opening um, with the American flag and George C. Scott is not only iconic, it is, I believe, a window into the very nature of the American psyche. Here is a white man telling his presumably white male soldiers that America is a country that loves war and that they are to go forth and inflict as much pain and suffering as is humanly possible on their enemy. Indeed, Patton actually feels sorry for the Nazis on some level because of the brutality that's going to be coming their way. Released in 1970, Patton came out around the time Hollywood, the new Hollywood, was in full swing. Violence was one of its most notable characteristics. The American movie had always been violent, but never like this. Bullets ripping through people and violence being committed for seemingly very little reason at all. How prominent is violence in the psyche of American, therefore, and especially amongst white Americans? Well, Lee seems to have an idea on this, because what he does cut to, the Rodney King beatings, and by cops most likely in some cases, the children of boomers, the parents of which Patton is giving that speech to. And of course, over this we hear Malcolm X blaming white people for the violence, his brutality, and in that moment you are caught off guard, Films don't often be begin like this. We're not, we aren't used to being eased into a story. Instead, we are being held accountable. And can you in the moment argue against the point he makes? Well, there isn't time because the volley of accusations comes thick and fast. If in Patton says violence is a way of life in front of the American flag, then Lee wants us to know there are consequences to this. And more often than not, people of color bear those consequences often at this time with little or no legal justice. It's often hard to place ourselves in history and imagine what it must have been like for an individual group to be truly understand their terror. We know how awful the Holocaust was, but it's truly hard to fathom how, based simply on your religion, another group would want to wipe you off the face of the earth and you'd be subjected to unimaginable cruelty and suffering and how this would have truly felt for its victims. And by including the beating of Rodney King, Lee connects past and present. Malcolm X seems far less controversial when you see a black man being beaten senseless by a group of police officers whose job it is apparently to protect us. And all this is made even more sinister given the craze in the early 90s for the home video blooper shows that were so popular, which normally show people falling into swimming pools. But in this instance, you see a black man being given a truly horrific beating. Now, Malcolm's words may seem extreme, but don't forget what you were being made, they were being made when people were still being killed with impunity simply for the color of their skin. You may not like what he is saying, and certainly it is racist, but as this film will show, Malcolm X was channeling a very righteous anger, and of course the film also gives him a shot at redemption when it comes to correcting some of the racist sentiments in this speech. And if this volley wasn't enough, then Lee ups the ante even more, because in front of you, he burns the American flag until it resembles an X. Now, if ever there was a shocking moment in cinema, this has to be right up there, because you cannot burn the American flag, surely. Well, fuck you, says Spike Lee, I'm going to. And think about it, I've no issue with flag burning, it's your right to do so. But even so, this feels like a moment, a real example of the power of cinema to shock. And it is easily, I think, one of the most powerful moments in the entire film. 
And I also think it's a very telling statement. Norman Jewson was supposed to make this film, and would he have done something this bold, this confrontational? I sincerely doubt it, and I think it is why Spike Lee had to be the director on Malcolm X. However, I don't think the film ever comes close to hitting these types of notes again. The first section of Malcolm X deals with his upbringing. We learn through flashbacks his mother was raped by a white man and was always ashamed of her complexion, and her, his father was murdered after the family were terrorised by the Ku Klux Klan. These scenes tend to be the most effective. The Ku Klux Klan, I think, I've always seen them as kind of a joke organisation. They look so ridiculous in those stupid outfits. A bunch of idiots who I was used to setting on fire in the game Red Dead Redemption. Yet this was a very real jolt. The film reminded me of how fundamentally evil a group they were. They are so sinister, so frightening, yet cowards on the most base level, terrorising in women and children under the safety of a hood. And you go back to that opening, a mother raped, a father murdered, it's a constant callback. This man is the product of a society that has allowed violence to go unheeded. It actually makes you wonder how Malcolm X could have not been even more angry than he was. And after the opening credits, the film sets its store. It's a huge period drama. Costumes, clothes and extras can be seen for as far as the eye can see. It actually cost a million dollars on its first day of filming. And it's a statement. This is going to be big and it's going to be epic. And it works because Malcolm X looks incredible. Lee uses five different distinct visual palettes to the film to show the phases of Malcolm X's life. In the first phase, it has a distinctly nostalgic, almost sentimental feel to it, bathed in gorgeous sun and brass look. And we meet a very different Malcolm. This is a man trying to be white, straightening his hair, dressing smartly in a way he believes will make him more palatable to white people. He's violent, loves drugs, booze, women and dancing. And Malcolm has several different people Malcolm was several different people and it's to the film's credit that we see them because it all comes back to that opening. How did that man come into being? And possibly my favourite scene takes place in the opening hour. Lee does a full-blown Hollywood musical playing the role of Shorty. Lee himself and Malcolm X go to a big band musical night and no attempt is made at this just being a dance with real people. This is a musical sequence. Lee loves musicals and this scene just says fuck it and it's huge. The camera swirls over the band, every dance is perfectly choreographed. It's like West Side Story complete with Shorty shuffling along the floor to looking directly into the camera. And again, only Spike Lee could do this in a film. It's why he was born to do it and it's this stage I was reminded of. And I was almost reminded at times during these opening scenes of something like Nicholas Ray melodramas. It's a very romantic film, the soundtrack is full of contemporary balance and yet you get this kind of melancholy that Malcolm X is very much a lost soul. We see through flashbacks the constant racial prejudice he has been subject to from his family being attacked by the KKK, his father murdered and after his father was murdered he was taken into care and being repeatedly told that as a black person he could only progress so far in society. Throughout the film we also hear a voiceover by Malcolm X taken directly from his memoirs and that does give I think the film a kind of educational tint to it. Now I would always say, be hesitant to say that um, we should look to films as kind of 
educational aids because the, the, like most things Malcolm X is taking huge dramatic liberties with certain areas of its subject but I do really think it gives a good for someone like myself who I, I've heard of Malcolm X but I didn't really know that much about him and I think certainly as I was watching the film I became consciously aware that I felt like I was definitely being given a kind of a history lesson in some regards but I also think the film is kind of a critique as well from Lee about the everyday violence in American culture. Malcolm and Shorty play pretend scenes from gangster films complete with actual gunshot sounds as they pretend to reenact shootouts. And in one instance, Shorty shoots Malcolm in the back as he runs, and they might simply be mucking around, but the actual gunshot noise makes the moment generally quite jarring. We've seen unarmed Americans being shot by cops in the back on more than one occasion, both black and white. And is Lee, I wonder, joining the dots between the violence of the movies and the violence of the real wife? And again, I think back to the film's opening and pattern, telling his troops that Americans love war and they love violence, to the very generation whose offspring would be doing the beating to Rodney King. And Malcolm, in these early moments, is a kind of Clyde Barrow, Dillinger-esque figure. He has a crew of cons to rob with when he is invariably caught and sentenced to jail. And sadly for me, Malcolm X plateaus as a film at this point. It never becomes overtly bad, but for me, it becomes far less interesting as an experience. Malcolm is thrown in jail and thus begins a cinematic journey into the world of pure cliché. There's being thrown into the hole don't they all? He meets Baines, played by the excellent Albert Hall, who begins to help Malcolm convert to Islam and induces him to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and the nation of Islam. And thus comes the cliches on top of cliches. The father-son dynamic becomes cinematic shorthand for, have, for moving Malcolm from his past to present life. The dialogue is especially weak, on-the-nose type of stuff you've heard a thousand other prison dramas. What I enjoyed about the first section of Malcolm X was the lack of conformity to the bio biopic. It genuinely felt like something new and fresh. During an after-prison sequence, though, he seems to take the film far more seriously in terms of its visual style, and as such, Malcolm X fills and becomes far more formulaic. A protagonist is introduced in the form of Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad, played by Albert Freeman Jr. and we have to be honest as to what the nation of Islam actually was. It was a cult, a sexist, racist, intolerant, divisive cult led by Elijah Muhammad, who, like all cult leaders, used his position for personal gain, be it financial or for sleeping with women. And Washington's portrayal of Malcolm X is actually spellbinding, I think, during this phase of the film. The passion of the delivery of the speech is and the genius changing character from the thug to a genuinely brilliant orator with a piercing, almost otherworldly gaze is genuinely captivating. And it needs to, because I'm not sure Malcolm X, without it, would begin to wear slightly thin. Yet what is undeniable is that the film shows Malcolm constantly trying to learn more, trying to be better than he is. A trip to Mecca where he comes to understand that he can share the same space as a white person, that he not need to see all white people as the enemy. What it is, is clearly a very rudimentary observation, actually seems far more profound. You understand what has shaped Malcolm and there is bravery in this moment too, for now he is in fact 
an enemy of the very organization that saved him. And again, Lee begins to do the biopic by numbers. Malcolm is now married, and of course, there are arguments with her, with his wife. He can't go on doing this. What about the children, etc., etc., etc.? And then the inevitable happens, and it is absolutely shocking. I just had, again, the film, I, I, I just assumed it would have been some crank white person that shot him but when you actually discover it was members of the nation of islam which is something i'd completely forgotten about i think i knew it but i was still genuinely shocked when this moment happened in the film and i wonder what would become of malcolm x as i was watching it i honestly believe that he would have been an even bigger figure in history world history not just in the united states but of course we will never really know and the film's closing montage of contemporary footage whilst ozzy davis delivers the very eulogy he provided at Malcolm's funeral. It is, a, for me, a slight return to the film that is almost undone by the children standing up and saying, I'm Malcolm X. And of course, Nelson Mandela, not long released from prison, is a hugely touching sight. The film is beautiful to watch. It is exquisitely shot by Ernest Dixon. And it's a huge film, and it has to be, because it's to do justice to its sensual character. Yet, for a good two hours, it is an incredibly formulaic biopic of a quite extraordinary man. It was never dull, and up until Malcolm goes to prison, I think it's a genuinely gripping and exquisitely directed film. Washington was not nominated for an Oscar, which I find incredible, and I don't think he's ever possibly been better in another role. Um, Criterion Argan apparently going to be releasing a UHD, which I'm going to pick up because make no mistake, I do think this is a very, very good film. It's just not a great film, and I, I suspect that that UHD, I think, will uh, make me appreciate its cinematic qualities even more. Now, Malcolm X did receive a fairly wide 70mm release. The soundtrack featured five front channels and one rear surround channel, and it still receives the odd screening. Um, on 70mm, especially during Black Pride Month. The Blu-ray looks great as well, that's just the one, that's not even the Criterion one, so let's wait and see what they manage to do with this, but that was Spike Lee's Malcolm X. So to end this year's festival, and of course I have to bookend it with a bona fide 70mm film, I went with a not so famous 70mm production that I had never seen, and that film was Carol Reed's The Agony and Ecstasy. Now you need to picture this scene. Carol Reed was in Tahiti, yes that Tahiti a place I long to visit and one day I damn well will. And he was 
And rather than enjoying being in paradise, he was in fact in hell. For Reed was directing Mutiny on the Bounty, a huge Hollywood remake of the Charles Lawton 1934 film. And Reed had been signed up to the project, believing he was going to be in charge of the making of it. Only there was a spanner in the works. The 37-year-old Marlon Brando playing Fletcher Christian in the film was very much the man in control. Every line of dialogue had to be rewritten over and over to his liking and the star also had a huge sexual appetite that was taking up vast amounts of time as well as several trips to the VD clinic. Carol had barely shot any footage when the rainy season fell upon the production and after much heartache he decided to walk away from the project and he had had enough and did what all good directors do which is throw himself into his next project in this case it would be The Running Man I think it's a really underrated little thriller starring Lawrence Harvey who fakes his own death for the insurance money and decamps to Spain it's a bit daft yes but I certainly found it quite gripping and it entertained me for an hour and a half critics however hated the film it was savage and Reed began to express doubts to whether his time had come. Meanwhile, Charlton Heston was on the lookout for a new project. He had several on the go at the time. The Warlord, Fate is the Hunter, Satanbug and Khatoum. And the writer Irving Stone, who had written a biography of Vincent van Gogh, which was turned into the film Lust for Life, turned his attention to the story of Michelangelo and the Agony and Ecstasy released in the novel form in 1961 sold 51 million copies and was ripe for the film treatment. Heston loved the idea of the project and took it to Fox who believed with Heston in the lead role of Michelangelo it could indeed turn a profit. Dal Zanuck was executive producer and began looking for directors. Fred Zimmerman was the early first choice with the role of Pope Julius II hovering between Laurence Olivier and Spencer Tracy. The film would be shot in Italy to reduce the cost and ultimately I think this would be much to the film's benefit. It certainly I think gives more weight to the historical nature of the film. Rex Harrison then decided he was interested in the role of the Pope and was signed up and after Fred Zimmerman declined to direct, Guy Green who had worked with Heston in Diamond Head was briefly considered before turning the project down. Dawsanek then turned to Carol, and this was, in reality, a move made in desperation. Such was Reed's then current standing. Heston, however, was pleased with the choice of Reed. He wrote in his diary, The word from Fox is that we have Carol Reed. This is good. I'm sure we have a chance for a superior film. With him, he confers class on the whole project. Reed flew to meet Heston and thrash out details of the script before heading to Rome with writer Philip Dune to scout location. Heston went off to film Major Dundee and The Warlord. And there was one criticism of Heston that had been made in his films is that he looked the same in all of them. So with the help of makeup artist Ben Nye, Heston was given a veritable facelift for Michelangelo. A broken, made, a broken nose was made a tad more damaged and Heston agreed to grow a beer for the role. Despite the Vatican being willing for the film to be shot in the Sistine Chapel, it was deemed too much of an insurance risk to do so. And there's also significant cracks and faded paint on the artwork. Instead, a replica was made using photographs of the cracks painted out that would be covered in plaster and removed as Heston worked with the scene during the film. When Heston arrived in Rome, he was pleased with Reed's progress. 
Reed had changed the script, tightening its focus, and Heston was in agreement with Reed. However, there were concerns about Rex Harrison. Reed warned him that Harrison may be a tad annoyed that he did not have the leading part in the project. Harrison, however, had other ideas. His character, the Pope, was clearly the most important character, he believed, and Harrison wrote in his diaries that Heston went to great lengths to thank him for being a supporting character in the film. However, in his head, Harrison was the lead, and he was quite happy to leave it at that. The filming of the Agony in the XD, by all accounts, was a fairly harmonious affair. Reed was a slow director in terms of setups. Much of the time is taken up with cinematographer Leon Shamroy, who had shot previous epics Cleopatra and the Cardinal, taking a seeming eternity to light and prepare shots. Yet Reed, yet Reed managed to keep things together. He and Heston worked well, and even if Harrison didn't believe he was the lead in the film, he seemed to certainly enjoy the experience of working on it. Glad, my son, to see you here in Rome and at work. Even though I had declared a holiday, I commend such zeal. I recall the last time I gave you a commission, you ran from me as though I had the pox. And your holiness will also recall the reason. When I applied for payment, you had me driven from this palace as though I had the pox. Silence! You will speak only when I give you permission. And then you will not speak of money. During my campaign in the Romania, I found time to do some reading. I didn't know you were a poet, Buonarotti. On Rome, in the pontificate of Julius II, a sonnet. Here helms and swords are made of chalices. The blood of Christ is sold, so much the court. Recognize those words. For thee, he who wears the papal crown is my Medusa still. I have been compared to Lucifer, Beelzebub, the Antichrist, but never before Medusa. Now, I was a bit surprised by the agony and the ecstasy. I had to watch it three times in order to finally come to some conclusions about it. Firstly, The Agony and the Ecstasy is most certainly not a bad film. The story of Michelangelo and Pope Julius II, Clash of Egos, has plenty of heart. Everyone involved in seems to be giving their all. However, there is one glaring issue with The Agony and the Ecstasy. The film wants you to believe there is a doubt that Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel will never be completed, and that the conflicts between him and the Pope and the warring armies that have invaded Italy are going to mean that Michelangelo will never get to finish it. But of course we know one thing about the Sistine Chapel. It was finished. Ergo, the Agony XC lacks a certain dramatic tension. The MacGuffin of the story is now is a narrative that we know has already been completed. Essentially, the film is a clash of egos, however. The Pope is fighting a war of his enemies and has one eye on his legacy. He's already planning a suitable tomb in his honour, but with the chapel he wants something for the here and now. Michelangelo is a perfectionist. He refuses at every available opportunity to work to timetables and isn't afraid to tell the Pope how it is and what is going to happen. And of course, the Pope is always threatening him with some form of punishment. And indeed, the interplay between Heston and Harrison is at times great fun to watch. And what builds over the course of the story is the fact that Michelangelo and the Pope need each other or the project, i.e. the Sistine Chapel, needs their antagonism in order... For, to be what it would eventually become. Michelangelo dares to give God a form he pants 
he paints man naked in his presence, leading to calls of blasphemy from the Pope's pious aides. But again, you know nothing is going to really happen to him. And try as I might, the Never film comes close to convincing you there's any very, very real peril to those involved. And the film is also slightly confused. It knows it's an epic, and therefore in the tradition of the epic, we have huge epic battles as the Pope fights the invading armies. Reed and Leroy Shamray shoot all this brilliantly. There's echoes of films such as Last of the Mohicans with the huge sieges. Even in Apocalypse Now as Michelangelo and the Pope look over designs whilst the battle rages around them. Yet somehow this does at times feel like fan service, as if because it's a 70mm film there has to be epic scenes of fights going on. And such, they do sometimes feel rather forced. The Papal States are under invasion, yet we are not really sure of the geography of the war really that well, or who the combating parties are and their motivations. In my head I think I wrote a better film than the one that is here, and possibly even agreed with Harrison that the Pope should have been the lead character. If the film had been more focused on the Pope defending Italy from the invading armies, because he believed so much that the Sistine Chapel had to be finished to please God, and its symbolic value of faith and art, the reason for it having to defend the lands from the blasphemers and the heathens, it might have been a slightly more exciting film. Of course, it would be a load of ahistorical garbage, but I think it would have given more weight to those scenes and urgency to Michelangelo's having to paint before the hordes arrived, perhaps even a scene of the film seeing the chapel and surrendering before it or something, I don't know. But this is a Charlton Heston picture, and of course he throws himself full-blown into the role. But I don't know if, see, if I see Heston as a painter. He is a warrior, a much different kind of beast altogether. And I'm not sure Heston has the subtlety, perhaps, to actually make you believe that at any stage in the process of painting the chapel, Michelangelo had any actual doubts. Critics have scoffed at the scene in which Michelangelo gets the inspiration for the creation of Adam and Eve of the Adam and Eve fresco, but I rather liked it. Him, sta Michelangelo standing on the mountain whilst God appears in the sky. I work in a role where I have to have inspirational moments of creativity, and good Lord, I'd be overjoyed if they came to me in this fashion. And when you do get a good idea, it can be quite a divine experience, not so much in the religious sense, but in the smug satisfaction you're going to make your boss happy and piss the person off who hasn't got a good idea as you. Yes, holy father. Not angry, not vengeful. Like that. Strong, benign, loving. He knows anger too, but the act of creation is an act of love. You have not had an easy life, my son, but you can picture him like that. Grateful for his gift to me. The most perfect of gifts. If I had to choose my life over again, I think I would choose to be an artist. What you have painted there, my son, is not a portrait of God. It's a proof of faith. I haven't felt that faith needed proof. Not if you're a saint. Or an artist. I am merely a pope. Thank you.
you made Adam. And this is how you see man. Noble, beautiful, unafraid. How else should I see him? As he is. Corrupt and evil. His hands dripping with blood destined for damnation. Your painting is beautiful but false. I cannot change my conception. You've taught me not to waste my time trying to change your conceptions. How did you arrive at this? I thought my idea for the panel was that man's evil he learned from himself, not from God. Yeah. I wanted to paint man as he was first created. Innocent, still free of sin. Grateful for the, the gift of life. Now, I am an atheist, but there is no denying that faith and belief have given us some of the greatest buildings, literature and artwork on the planet. And it brings out the best in man. Cathedrals, mosques, temples of such scale and magnificence that they beg a belief. Nothing in the modern era can come close to what has been made in the past in the name of religion. And with the agony and the ecstasy, I think it just reminds us how inspirational faith can be. To inspire art of this level is truly a thing of wonder. And I believe the film captures this. I cannot think of anything even remotely comparable to the Sistine Chapel that has been inspired by atheism. And I particularly love the scene where Michelangelo and the Pope look at the work and what it means to them. The Pope sees men as corrupt and evil, destined for damnation. Michelangelo sees a more hopeful outlook for mankind and the Pope has come to the conclusion he might not actually have served God in the way that pleases him but the artist Michelangelo has and, it's, and I think it's a nice reminder of the importance and how transcendental art can be and you can be an atheist and have no religious belief at all and the Sistine Chapel will make you look up in nothing but awe and even in the intervening years since its creation when science has distant proven so much of what the bible held to be true pieces of art like this cannot be denied it cannot be dim diminished it's lasting testament to one's to the wonder of man's abilities and i think the film is a fitting tribute to michelangelo in this case his talent was otherworldly and indeed the film starts with a 12 minute mini documentary on why he was such an important artist showing some of his most famous works were this perhaps a 70 millimeter documentary on the subject possibly even something cinerama may have done i think i would have been fully on board with that as well as it stands, The Agony and Ecstasy is a good, if not great, film. It's well-directed, written and acted, but lacks a dramatic impetus. Pre on the basis history has already given us a massive spoiler alert. Now, 70mm notes. This one was shot on 65mm Todd AL and received a very large 70mm release and was well-received by critics and audiences at the time. It has been restored on a 70mm print that is doing the rounds. It played at the widescreen weekend in Bradford and by all accounts was a huge success and looked incredible. The Blu-ray is as well absolutely brilliant. It's a fantastic transfer and it sounds and looks amazing. 
So that's going to be it for this year's 70mm festival. It will return next year, of course. I have already, I think, nailed down what I'm going to be talking about. Um, if you've liked the episode, uh, do let me know. You can follow me. Um, you can email me at 24kframescast.gmail.com. If you have any 70mm stories that you want to share with me, please do let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated. I, I, I don't wish to sound like I'm incondescending, but I... I, I was not of an age where I could really appreciate 70mm blow-ups, so some of you who are kind of slightly older audience members might want to uh, share your thoughts with me. That would be great. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact soon. Bye. <laughs>